HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. listening to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network with me, your host, Erica Wides. Hi, I wasn't here last week because of my knee and I started going to PT and the pain went away. So I don't know. Do I keep going to PT? Do I just do it on my own? I, um, I don't know. Anybody have any suggestions? If anybody has ever dealt with patellofemoral syndrome, a.k.a. runner's knee, just let me know. Okay, because the pain's gone. So I don't know what the hell is happening. Anyway, um, do you not love the movie Annie Hall? I mean, come on. How many times have you watched Annie Hall? Okay, wait. Like, don't tell me you haven't seen Annie Hall. Never seen Annie Hall out there in the booth, young guy? No? Really? Dave Tat, you've seen Annie Hall. How many times? So many. How many? Um, pr- probably only once, oh, actually. really? <laughs> Yeah. I've seen it so many times I can like recite it. But what occurred to me is that I think of it as like, you know, sort of an old movie, but it's actually like 40 years old now. <laughs> like, so it's like how movies like from the 30s were old when I was in high school. <laughs> so I have to kind of catch up with like the lost decades. But okay. Anyway, Annie Hall. So great. So if you haven't seen it, you have to see it because it it's it's classic. Now. Like, seriously, for sarcastic New Yorkers, especially Jews, not seeing Annie Hall is like never having seen Star Wars or The Godfather. Okay, it's like up in that level of classic movie pantheon. So <clears throat> it's a rite of passage. Seeing Annie Hall is like an indoctrination into a club that you'd never join because they'd never have you as a member. 
that's actually a very inside Annie Hall joke. If you haven't seen the movie, you won't get that joke because it's an inside joke about the movie. It's very meta if you haven't seen it. So you got to go see it. Watch it. I think it's even on Netflix. Okay, so if you haven't seen it, I want you guys to all go see it. Go watch it tonight. Find it. You know, you young kids, you just download Zip Zip Dark Web, whatever. I don't know. Go to Blockbuster, rent it. Go watch it and then come back and re-listen to today's show or just listen to today's show and you'll get that joke. Plus, you'll get the rest of what I'm going to talk about in today's show. Okay? So, that's your homework assignment from me, your teacher. Now, in Annie Hall, the movie, Annie Hall, Woody Allen, who, believe me, I am not a fan of anymore because he's a gross, disgusting old man and a jerk, but nonetheless, I still appreciate him as an artist particularly his movies from before his ugly, sordid activities of the last 25 years or so, okay? Like, up until Hannah and her sisters. Totally respect the work. So in Annie Hall, he plays a fictionalized version of himself. It's an autobiographical movie. And the guy he plays is called Alvy Singer. Now, Alvy Singer is a very sort of prototypical New York neurotic Jew of a certain generation, Okay, like post-war, not quite a boomer, but almost like in that in-between. Born during World War II, born and raised, you know, in Brooklyn, but moves to New York, takes advantage of everything New York has to offer to creative, ambitious people before it turned into a playground for the horrible rich people. But anyway, so he plays that that guy. And he's the type of guy who doesn't like nature or the outdoors. He's not at all outdoorsy. He's academic. He's urbane. And Usually in his movies from back then, he's chasing after some non-Jewish shiksagadis tale that his mother would completely disapprove of. Okay, that's generally what his movies were about. This Now, I think this generation of older New York Jewish kind of guy has faded out. I, I can't really think of any that I know anymore. But anyway, Albie Singer was the classic example. Of, of that guy. So in the movie, Alvy meets and immediately falls for Annie, Annie Hall, who is this like willowy, quirky, very waspy character from Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, played brilliantly by Dan, Diane Keaton, who I just love so much. I love Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton, if you're listening, I love you. And they begin this bumpy relationship. Now, at this point, from here on in, I'm going to be giving away some plot, okay? So if you're planning on watching the movie before you listen to this episode, this is where you should press pause because otherwise you'll find out everything that happens in the movie. Not that there's any great huge plot, but this is where you should go away. <laughs> so young guy in the booth whose name I forgot is walking out right now. Okay, bye. Okay, so we'll see you next week. If you're not going to listen to the show anymore, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in a week. Okay, now for everybody else, the rest of you who have been properly educated in film history, let's now continue with the show. Okay, so Annie and Alvy, of course, they get involved, but inevitably it starts to fall apart pretty quickly because they're just so different. And at some point, Annie decides she's going to move to L.A. to find herself while Alvy stays in decaying, dying 1970s New York because that's how New York was New York was in the 70s. It was a decaying, crumbling, dirty, dangerous city. You young kids living here now, you have no idea what it was like, okay? This place was a mess in the 70s. 
So Annie wants out of the like neurotic Jewish dark cloud world of Alvi's New York. And she goes to L.A. because L.A. is sunny and new and open and swinging and provides all sorts of possibilities for a young, ambitious, creative woman. Okay, so she goes. She goes to L.A. She starts hanging out with Paul Simon, who's not Paul Simon in the movie. He plays this other guy, record producer. But she starts hanging out with him and Jeff Goldblum's in it. It's really funny. And she starts singing and she gets a new mantra and everything's cool. She's living the life in L.A. And then Alvy comes to visit and he calls her up and he says, I'm here because he had to use phones back then. And she tells him to meet her at this restaurant. Um, I think the restaurant was on Sunset. It's, I think it was on Sunset. And so he goes to meet her and he sits outside at a table. And, um, you know, because it's California and you can sit outside, even though California had like the worst air pollution in the country back then, which you probably knew. Maybe you didn't know that. But... Um, Sorry, I'm just trying to get my phone charger out while we're talking. So this being California in the 70s, because my battery is about to die and the show is on my phone. This being California in the 70s, it's all about health food. Health food, right? Like alfalfa sprouts and tahini and tofu. Because the regular industrial food available of the day was so bad. And the array of food <clears throat> was much more limited than like what we have now and that we take for granted now that there was like this really distinct contrast between like regular food and what was called health food. Like there was only iceberg lettuce in salads back then. It was that bad. It was that dire of situation. We only had like iceberg lettuce. Okay. Now in our town that I grew up in, we actually had a restaurant that served health food. That's what people would call it. It's health food, right? Because there was a difference between real food and health food. So it was health food as opposed to like what? Like death food? That was the difference? I don't know. But anyway, the place in our town was called Shambhala Gardens. And they served a lot of alfalfa sprouts. Like a shit ton of alfalfa sprouts. I'm just trying to plug in my phone. Hold on one second. Okay, we're all good now. So they served like food like alfalfa sprouts and tahini dressing. And there was always a lot of grated carrots on everything, I remember too. And I think it may have been run by a cult this restaurant, but I really liked eating there though because it kind of made me feel like very like cool and superior, like very like counterculture superior compared to like my friends who were eating like Twinkies and bologna and Lucky Charms. And I was like, look, I go here and we eat hummus and tahini and stuff. And also there was this really nice cat in the restaurant that used to sit under the table as you ate. And I liked that, even though that's totally illegal. Anyway, so Alvy's sitting there at this L.A. restaurant version of Shambhala Gardens in L.A. And the waiter comes over and hands him a menu. And Alvy quickly kind of glances at the menu, hands it back to the waiter after his perfunctory glance and says, I'll have the mashed yeast. And this is, of course, a hilarious extremist example of California's ridiculous, in Alvy's view, cuisine and everything absurd about California that he can't stand, like the shallowness and hollowness of the culture, the Hollywood culture, the bright sun, which, of course, burns his pale, indoor New Yorker skin, the embrace of all things new and faddish, which is what California is. It's the new world. He's an old school East Coast liberal establishment guy, right? He's like Bernie Sanders, kind of. Well, no, that's an insult to Bernie Sanders. But, you know, that kind of old school East Coast liberal thing. So when he wrote the scene, the food that he ordered, of course, probably had to be as ridiculous as the culture his character was now flopping around in as the proverbial fish out of water. 
And so it was mashed yeast. He ordered the mashed yeast, which I found hilarious at the time. It was pretty funny. And I still find it hilarious now in its absurdity. Because in an earlier scene in the movie, Alvy takes Annie to a deli in New York City where he just goes, I'll have the corned beef. And she goes, oh, I'll have the pastrami on white bread with mayonnaise and lettuce. And he like rolls his eyes in disgust. So you see what I mean? They were never meant to be together, Alvy and Annie. They were star-crossed lovers meeting on sunset over a plate of mashed yeast. It just, it just doesn't really work. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, more about California. I dream I was in so National Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Weitz. Okay, now, you have to keep in mind that that movie was made almost 40, holy crap, yeah, like 40 years ago. I think it came out in 77. That's a long time ago. So that was like way before the food revolution that we're in right now happened, right? You sort of like don't even realize how much has changed in food. But before, you know, the whole earth to table movement, before there were farmers markets in every town, before Whole Foods, before arugula, okay, before they invented arugula, this was like back then. So just keep that in mind. Food in the U.S. in the second half of the 20th century was bad, like seriously bad shit, like highly industrialized. It still is full of chemicals. It still is, but not so much. Blandly uniform, not really anymore, just bad, okay? Because it was a direct result of post-World War II industrial technology brought to the mainstream masses via super-efficient, cheap manufacturing, and production techniques, right? It all came out of World War II, efficiency and production and chemical technology. Then in California in the 1970s, all of that started to change. Alice Waters came onto the scene and farmers markets came back. You know, we used to have markets in every town before our food systems were centralized and industrialized. The organic movement arose. Health food, which I was talking about, became like a legit thing. And then California cuisine started, which emerged in the late 70s, this idea of a regional California cuisine. It all started there, and then it all kind of trickled east. You know, we think of, like, New York, center of everything, but really we were, like, way behind food-wise. Sure, we had, like, high-end French and very classical stuff, and but the whole, like, new American earth-to-table thing, that all came from California, right? So that changed everything, but not for everybody, 
because we still live in this totally divided, polarized society of those who eat the arugula and those who don't eat the arugula. And most of it is divided by socioeconomic lines, unfortunately, but also along political and cultural lines, because even during Obama's first campaign, they used arugula as an example of what he ate versus what John McCain ate. Arugula versus, you know, what does John McCain eat? I don't know. I don't know what John McCain would eat. What does an old Republican with one arm eat? I don't know. John McCain seems so benign to me now compared to the potential nightmare we're about to wake up into. But anyway, back to California. John McCain's like someone's old doddering grandpa compared to, well, whatever. Back to California. California. So there's Annie living it up in L.A., hanging out with, oh, Tony Lacey. That was Paul Simon's character, Tony Lacey. And they're going to parties and they're smoking pot and hanging out in the hot tub and everything. So California was it was that golden crescent by the sea, right? It's called the Golden State. Golden. It was a a wonderland. To us East Coast kids, I remember like kids from my school, they'd go on vacation to California and it was like they were going to like the promised land. It was like this mythical place. California. We would go to like the Shenandoah Mountains or like the Wisconsin Dells on vacation. Also beautiful, interesting places. But California. We wouldn't go there because you couldn't drive there. It was too far. But it was this land. It was Hollywood and Disney and perfect tan bodies and orange groves and avocados and Jack and Janet and Chrissy roller skating along the Santa Monica boardwalk. That was California. Everybody was fit and healthy and tanned and glowing. And California cuisine, which I would like read about in my mom's magazines, it was all about fruit and arugula and grilling and being outside all the time on a patio in the Hollywood Hills like you were living like on the cover of Sunset Magazine. It was this shining beacon of health at the other end of a country that had been left scarred and beaten by industrialization and recession and Watergate and Nixon beckoning to us, us pale, unfit, polluted East Coasters and Rust Belters to come West. Come West. We're all healthy and shiny and strong here. It's beautiful. We drink our fresh-squeezed OJ and we sit in the hot tub and we have a lot of casual sex and we all do yoga. Because that's what it looked like to me, anyway, when I was a kid. You know, I was watching it all on TV. So this was all through the lens, of course, of pre-cable TV, California. And then I had this friend named Heather of course, she was named Heather because everybody who came from California in the 70s had to be named Heather. And Heather had moved with her family to our town from somewhere outside of San Francisco, I think in about 1980. And we met in junior high. We met in ninth grade. And Heather knew how to make guacamole. You couldn't even like find an avocado back then. She knew how to make guacamole. And she loved Tom Petty and Taco Bell. We didn't have Taco Bell yet in the East. And Tom Petty, I don't know, he was just some nasally guy to me, but she loved him. And she missed her life in California so much that the minute we graduated high school, boom, she went right back to go to UC Santa Cruz. But who can blame her? If you have to grow up in suburban Long Island or suburban San Francisco, which one would you pick? I mean, as we used to say back in junior high, duh, which choice would you make? So why am I rhapsodizing about the Golden State? What does that have to do with my show or with food or foodiness or any of it? Why am I presenting this image of this, the glimmering, shimmering dream bubble of California. Well, because it seems like the glimmering, shimmering dream bubble of California seems to have burst since its late mid-century heyday, because there were new stats out last week about California and its population. 
which is really just a representation of the larger country. Of course, they just have a very high dense population. Well, very high. <laughs> yeah, very dense population. It's legal now. But these new stats are, uh, as they'd say on Mad Men, not good, Bob. Not good. Which is a quote from a scene between Pete Campbell and Bob Benson on Mad Men, by the way, where Pete's upset about something. I can't remember what. And actually, Pete Campbell winds up moving to L.A. to the L.A. offices of Sterling Cooper Draper Price. And he lives the California dream in a big way. But then it kind of lets him down. And he realizes he's human and he misses his family. So then he comes home, gets back together with Trudy. They move to Kansas City and he works for Learjet's. So no more hot tubs and avocados for Pete Campbell. He lived the dream for a little while. Then he winds up in Kansas City, which seems sort of like the booby prize to me. But anyway, oh, those new stats about California. Right, right, right. Sorry, back on track. I just miss Mad Men so much. So according to an article about a study from UCLA that appeared in the LA Times last week, more than half the adult population in the state of California are now either diabetic or pre-diabetic. More than half, 55% of the population of adults in the state are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. That is insane. More than half. Where are Jack and Chrissy in the hot tubs now? What happened? What happened, California? Where did it all fall apart? Well, of course, economics plays a huge part in all of this because, as in the rest of the country, as the middle class shrinks... In size, it gains in girth, literally, because fast food invented in California, the drive-in, Sonic, In-N-Out, all of them, West Coast creations. The American car culture found its home in California. And while those images of healthy tan bodies and grilled arugula are still a major part of the culture, the reality is that the, ma- the majority of Californians, just like the majority of Americans, are struggling lower and middle class working people who spend a lot of time driving, very little time cooking, and most of their eating time with a fast food item and a large soda in their hands. Add it all up, and you get 55% of the population diabetic or pre-diabetic. Plus, factor in a huge immigrant population where the American-born first-generation kids tend to reject their native culture's foods for American-style eating, and you've got yourself an epidemic. You're welcome. It's totally understandable when you have to drive everywhere. You don't have the time or resources to shop or cook for real food. And fast food is so much cheaper and so much more easily available than real food. That's what happens. It's a perfect storm. But we can't play dumb here because we all know what causes type 2 diabetes, right? We know why you get it. And it's not the mashed yeast. It's the soda and the refined carbs and the sugars of fast food and processed food. We all know this. There is not a soul in America who's like sitting there with a big gulp and a Big Mac thinking like, oh, yeah, this is good for me. I'll be okay. I'll be healthy. It's come on. We can't play dumb anymore. And you add to that the sedentary lifestyle of minivans and giant TVs and video games, and you've got yourself a major health crisis. When pre-diabetic people in a study that this article was based on changed their lifestyle, as in like changed their food intake and started being a little bit more active, versus the people who were just put on medication for their prediabetes, the lifestyle people reduced their risk by 58%, 58%, while the medication-only people only cut their risk by 
So just put down the Slurpee, sir, and back away from the minivan because there's a way to undo this. Now, of course, the food industry is totally and completely to blame here. Big food, yet again, let's point the finger at you. And Big Pharma, because you encourage it. Big food buys up all the taxpayer-subsidized, your tax dollars, subsidizing these crops. The taxpayer-subsidized massive commodity crops like corn and sugar and wheat and rice that were made overly abundant and easy to farm and plentiful by chemical industrial farming. Talk about that World War II technology again. And then they hyper-process those crops into every imaginable shelf-stable fake food-shaped form drink and snack in the history of humanity. There has never been more variety in the processed food industry than at the moment we are at right now, this very minute. They package it all up, and then they sell that shit back to us, and then they sit back with their hands up saying it's all about personal choice and responsibility. Seriously? And then they get all in cahoots because when Coca-Cola and McDonald's fund the ADA, the American Dietetics Association, and provide the food for their conferences and the education materials that their members are then required to teach from, how much more fucked can the system get? And then, of course, you have Big Pharma who come in with all these new drugs for diabetes and heart disease and obesity, and you have what I always call a foodiness solution to a foodiness problem, a big perpetuating self what's the word self-perpetuating circle of a million billion giant sick americans getting flushed down the toilet basically and then another new study published in the la times recently announced that more than half the calories in the american diet come from hyper-processed foods so hyper-processed foods are like all the packaged stuff the breads and cakes and cookies and cereals and snacks and frozen foods and fast foods and fake foods that americans eat all day every day now some people in this study reported getting as much as 70% of their calories daily from hyper-processed foods. 70%. On average, it was between about 30 and 40%, which is still insane. 70%. I probably get like maybe like 1% one day of the week. I can't even think about like things that I eat that are nothing. I eat the occasional Triscuit, but I don't think that even counts because they're just made from wheat. There's nothing bad in Triscuits except the wheat itself. Okay, somebody needs to bring me a plate of mashed yeast, but put extra cheese on it because I'm getting a little low blood sugar. You're just thinking about this, so we're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wise. And, you know, like, I know it's really hard, you know, for people to find real food and to cook it and all that. It's not like there isn't, like, a supermarket on, you know, every corner. I know that in certain high-density cities in certain neighborhoods, it's very difficult to find actual food. I get it. But you know what? Like, our ancestors 100 years ago, 
came across the country in wagons and still managed to survive and eat. And there was not a Denny's at every highway rest stop back then. Okay, At every highway rest stop 100 years ago, there was just like a tribe of Indians who were trying to kill you. And maybe you could like, you know, shoot a deer. All right, I'm just saying. It was a little harder. They survived. Just saying. So hyper-processed foods are poised to become the next tobacco. You know what I mean? The next, like, major health crisis to be tackled. Except that the companies that make the hyper-processed foods are so deeply in bed with the USDA and the FDA that it's going to be a long, tough road to see them as the villains that we now see the tobacco companies as. When tobacco advertising was banned from TV, yeah, there used to be cigarette ads on TV, uh-huh. Smoking rates dropped. You think we'll ever see ads for processed food products drop from TV? Not in this lifetime, Bob. Not good. Not good at all. And speaking of tobacco, here's a really interesting thing that's happening, too. As smoking rates have plunged in the U.S., which you would never know walking around New York because it seems like everybody's out smoking on the street, but apparently we're smoking way, way less than we used to. But as smoking rates have plummeted, lung cancer rates are still holding steady. Hmm. In fact, lung cancer is the second most common cancer in the U.S. and the leading cause of cancer mortality. So what's causing all the lung cancer? People aren't smoking like they used to. Our air is actually much, much cleaner than it used to be. We don't live in nearly as polluted a world as we did a couple of decades ago. So why the lung cancer? What's going on? Guess what? A new study, high glycemic index foods cause lung cancer. Mm-hmm. What are high glycemic index foods? Oh, processed white flour carbs. Think industrially produced frozen bagels, frozen pizza, white bread, and my favorite villain, the breakfast cereal. Uh-huh. It's true. People with lung cancer not caused by smoking tend to ingest much higher amounts of processed white industrial carbohydrate products. Fascinating. So scientists from the University of Texas found that people who eat a diet full of high glycemic index foods, as I said, things like industrially processed white bread, bagels, cereals, white rice, have a 49% higher risk of developing lung cancer, even if they have never smoked a single cigarette in their life. Insane. Totally insane. High GI foods raise insulin levels in the body. Hello, California. Are you listening? which in turn raises what's called insulin-like growth factors, which are linked to an increased lung cancer risk. It's mind-boggling. Crazy shit, right? And as we all took the bait and we all followed the fat-phobic rhetoric throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s, what did people increase their consumption of instead of fats? Refined carbs and sugar, snack wells, low-fat muffins, more cereals. And as we stopped smoking so much, what stayed the same? Lung cancer rates. And what else increased like crazy? Obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. People stopped smoking and they were still getting heart disease. Lung cancer. People stopped eating fat and they were still getting fat. They were still getting heart disease. It's so, it's so, I can't even take it anymore. And you know what's not linked to heart disease after all? Cholesterol and fat. In fact, cholesterol and fat may actually protect your heart and prevent diabetes and heart disease. Oh my God, it's all totally insane. I cannot, it's like, I'll try to be more articulate. My grandfather, my grandpa Joey, used to eat these giant bowls of sour cream 
with bananas for lunch. He would just open up like a quart of sour cream, slice bananas into it, and eat it for lunch. I mean, everybody was always on him. Joe, don't eat the sour cream. Joe, it's bad for your heart. Joe. And then he would go outside and smoke two packs of camels a day for 70 years. He started smoking at 11. He died at like 81. He smoked two packs of unfiltered cigarettes a day. Still lived to be 81. Probably because he was eating all the sour cream. It was fermented and it was a full-fat dairy product. Probably wound up keeping him alive all those years. Who knew? So maybe Annie was on to something when they went to the deli that day on their date, asking for mayo on her pastrami. You know, she was maybe on to something. Have you seen Diane Keaton lately? She looks pretty freaking amazing. I love her. Did I mention that? Now, Woody Allen, on the other hand, have you seen him lately? Ugh. Okay, enough said. Oh, my God, we're out of time. Thanks for listening. Let's get real. The cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks to Dave Tat in the control booth today. Ben Kaplan for writing my theme music. And we'll see you next week. Oh, follow me on Twitter. Occasionally I tweet. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.